Here's how I want to start tonight. I want you to tell me everything you know about the book of Daniel so far. All right? So, talk to me. Tell me what stands out to you about the book of Daniel. What are some of the things you've remembered? Some of the things that you highlighted in your brain? Go. Yes? Man of integrity. Daniel was certainly a man of integrity. He was a man of prayer. Very much so. A man of faith. Hmm? He was a young man. He wasn't an old man. So that was a plus or a negative. One of the two, depending upon your own age, I suppose. What else can you think of about the book of Daniel? He relied on God. Yes, Daniel is very similar to Joseph. You can't find hardly anything bad said about the two. Now, Joseph, you can't imply that Joseph was a little bit prideful in the beginning. But you can't find anything said negatively about Daniel. Someone else? God enabled him to interpret, and that just wasn't a natural gift. God gave him that ability. The book of Daniel is one of the four books we call the what? Major prophets. Right. How did Daniel wind up in Babylon? He was one of the exiles. The first one or the second exile? First. First exile. He, uh, what was his first test when he got into Babylon? The food test. The food test. The food test. Sounds like something I would put my children through. The food test. Yes. He was sent to Babylon. He was groomed as one of the top officials there. And uh, they gave him the king's food and drink. And he declined based upon his faith. And he didn't do that militantly. He figured out a way to maintain his integrity without hacking everybody off in the process. It's a very wise and skillful man. What else can you remember about the book of Daniel? Yes, he was loyal to the Lord. He was loyal to his friends. He was also loyal to the people that were over him. We live in a day where we think you can't be loyal to both the government and your faith, let's say. But you can. Now, you'll get pushed against some lines like Daniel was, but Daniel never was militant about his faith. You will not find Daniel being militant about his faith anywhere. Uh, you, you won't find Daniel going out of his way to be odd for God. So, anything else you can think of? Yes? If he was so supportive of his friends, why isn't he mentioned in chapter 3? <laughs> it's a good point, and I don't know the answer to that one. If he's so supportive to his friends, why isn't he mentioned in chapter 3? Uh, we know that he was loyal to his friends because he actually speaks to Nebuchadnezzar and kind of ups their pay grade, if you will. 
Uh, but chapter 3, there's no mention of Daniel in chapter 3. Which could mean lots of things. It could mean Daniel wasn't in Babylon. Because remember, he was one of the officials. Even though he was a slave, he was an official of the king and one of the wise men. And so he could have been sent off on something. He could have been out of town. Who knows? Anything else you can remember? His name was changed to what? Belshazzar, which has to do with the Babylonian God. So can you remember the Hebrew names of the three Hebrew children? Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael. Somebody said Shaq, Drak, Meshach, and Abednego. Those are the Babylonian names. Yes. Why? Why did we say that they were given new names and new cultures and new food to eat? And, and what was that all about? To assimilate them into the culture. Somebody else said something. Yes. Yes. So kind of just to take away their identity and get them to be kind of part of the crowd. Which, I'm sorry. Pardon? Crew cut in the army. Yeah, very much so. Or orange, orange jumpsuits when you're in prison. You know, something like that. Yeah. Uh, which is still what our culture tries to do. You know, if you watch the ads, they say, be different. But they want you to dress like everybody else. Or eat the same food everybody else is eating. Or drink the same drinks everybody else is drinking. Or watch the same YouTube channels. And so it's, it's, nothing's changed. Okay, anything else you remember? What was Nebuchadnezzar's first dream? About the statue. What, what was it about the statue? Kingdoms. It represented four kingdoms. And what happens to the statue in the dream? It gets smashed by a rock. What kind of rock? Yeah, the scripture says a rock that wasn't hewn by human hands. You guys remember a lot. I'm really impressed. Wish I was giving out grades or something like that. Gold stars. Very good. Very good. Okay, anybody else want to add to this kind of recap? I always do a recap. I thought it would be better if you guys did the recap tonight. Last week we talked about the fiery furnace. Matter of fact, we spent the whole session on one chapter on the fiery furnace. Uh, what do you remember about that? Their faith didn't falter because their faith was in what? God. Not whether he was going to get them out of it or not. That's the really hard, that's the hardest lesson for me in, in Daniel is to find out that the three Hebrew children said, okay, we know our God can deliver us from this fiery furnace. But if he doesn't, we still won't bow. So that they could be faithful in the person who was over their circumstances, not in how their circumstance was going to turn out. That's huge. If you and I can ever get that, it will change the game on everything for us. Because it's so easy for us to talk about having faith that such and such is going to happen. 
as opposed to having faith that somebody's over such and such, however it happens. And that his intent, even if it turns out poorly, even if it turns out in a way we don't like, even if it turns out in a way that, that hurts us, that his intent is good. That will change everything for you and I if we can get a hold of that. Anything else you remember about the fiery furnace? Three were cast in, but four were in the furnace. Three were cast in, but there were four in there. Exactly. And the. Yes, yes. It was so hot that it killed the guys that threw the three men into the furnace, which seems like, if you'll pardon the pun, overkill to me. Uh, but that's kind of who he was. Yeah. They didn't even smell like smoke. You know, when I was lost and played music in the bars, I would come home at night, one, two o'clock in the morning, and I would take off my clothes and pile them on the floor. And the next morning, if you stirred those things, it would just about eat you up. I mean, it was just make your eyes water, you know. Um, and they hung out in the fiery furnace and didn't even smell like smoke. So, which raises the question of secondhand smoke in the fiery furnace, but we won't go there. <laughs> Anything else you remember? Fire did burn off their bondage. It did. Didn't burn the clothes, didn't burn their hair, didn't, didn't even singe them, but it burnt off the robes, which is interesting. Yes. Yep, there were four people in the fire. Three went in, four people were in, three came out. And the king said that the fourth looked like the son of God, of the gods plural. Okay, think of anything else? You guys have way better memory banks than I thought you would have. <laughs> no, we've just drilled this thing over and over and over. Uh, so one last thing and then we'll move on. How did the king respond to this uh, pyrotechnic feat? Hmm? He was furious? With, how did he respond though when they, when they weren't burned up? Yes, he heated it seven times hotter. But when they came out, what was his response? I mean, was he hacked and did he throw them back in again because they didn't get the job done or what? He bowed down to them and praised their God. Find it interesting that the king of Babylon, who was the biggest superpower known to man at that time, who ruled for all practical purposes, all the known world bows down to three Hebrew slaves. Very interesting. Very ironic. Yes? Even though he was in awe of the power connected with this God, he did not acknowledge who that God truly was. Yeah, he was in awe of the power. You're right. He was very much in awe of the power of God, but he didn't necessarily... He, he, he didn't throw away all the other gods for him. He just added him into the stable, if you will. Which was not unusual for that culture, to just keep kind of accumulating gods. He did make a decree that no other people or nation could say anything bad about their god. Correct. No one could say anything bad about them. Uh, yeah, which again is very interesting. All right, anything else you can remember? 
I'll jump through all these slides because you've already covered almost all of them. Okay, remember our outline for the book of Daniel is this. First half is Daniel's experience. Second half is Daniel's visions. His experiences and his visions. We're still working through the experiences. We've covered the arrival in Babylon. You guys talked about that. Nebuchadnezzar's first dream. The golden image that was in that dream. The fiery furnace. So tonight we go to chapter 4. as Nebuchadnezzar's second dream. So turn to chapter 4, if you will. Chapter 4 is actually a letter or a proclamation that King Nebuchadnezzar sends out to all of his kingdom. So what you're reading in chapter 4 is something that King Nebuchadnezzar sends out for everyone to read. It details his third and his final encounter with God. And this is Nebuchadnezzar's sending out this proclamation or this letter that talks about his third or his final encounter with God. The letter begins with him praising God about what he's getting ready to talk about. So look at chapter 4, verse 1. And we'll go through verse 3. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. This is how his letter starts. Peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and the wonders that the Most High God has done for me. Okay, now notice right off the bat, he sets God above all of his gods. He doesn't necessarily get rid of his gods. He sets God above all of his gods. Verse 3, how great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. So, so this is how it starts. Why he, what he's doing is he's relating to why he's praising God. And we'll get to that in a minute. Notice that verse 3, it says, How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. And it talks about his kingdom and his dominion. Those are all kind of royal terms. Never really talks about God. It talks about the, the special effects of God, if you will. Uh, which is something that would speak to King Nebuchadnezzar. He's all about ruling. He's all about control. So it would speak to him the signs, the wonders, the dominions, the size of his kingdom. All of that would speak to him. So, he's praising God for what's to come. So let's look at why he's praising God. Look at verse 3. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Sound familiar? You know, the wise men, if every time Nebuchadnezzar had bad pizza, the wise men were busy because they're trying to interpret some dream he had, right? So look at verse 7. Then the magicians and the enchanters and the Chaldeans and the astrologers came in and told me, and I told them the dream. This time they didn't have to come up with a dream. He told them the dream this time. But they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last Daniel came in before me, he whose name is Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods, 
Now notice he notices there's something special about Daniel, but he's still calling it the spirit of the holy gods. Still plural. And in whom is the spirit of the holy gods? And I told him the dream saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you. Tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. And here he's getting ready to talk about the dream. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. And the tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven. And it was visible to the end of the whole earth. And its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. And I saw in the vision of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven, he proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches and strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its root in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let them be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beast in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let the beast mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watcher, and the decisions by the words of the Holy One, to the ends that the living may know that the Most High rules. Okay, this is the purpose of this dream. Listen to it again. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, and the decision by the word of the Holy Ones. To the, to the end that the living may know that the Most High God rules the kingdom as men and gives them to whom he wills and sets over it the lowliest of men. Verse 18, This dream I, Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me, turn the page, the interpretations, but are able but you are able for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Okay, so Nebuchadnezzar lays out this dream. Now note that verse 17 tells you that the purpose of this dream is to make known that God is over all the kingdoms. That he sets in place whoever he wants to. It says he rules the kingdoms of men, gives them to whoever he wills, and sets over it the lowliest of men. That's the purpose of the dream. And it tells us that now... Daniel's reaction to the dream. Look at Daniel's reaction to the dream. Start in verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. And the king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. And Belteshazzar answered, which is Daniel, and said, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you, and its interpretation for your enemies. Okay, which is an interesting thing to say, isn't it? In other words, Daniel knows that the interpretation is not going to be good for the king. Now this is the king who has burned his home country and his home city, drugged Daniel and his friends off into captivity, and they are now slaves of this king. And Daniel is saying, 
this is so bad, I wish this wasn't for you. What does that say to you about Daniel? Hmm? Compassionate. Compassionate. That he tends to look at somebody not for what they've done to him, but who, the he, who they are. That, that even this dream, God is trying to get his attention. So Daniel says, even though you're, you're my master and I'm your slave, God's obviously trying to get your attention. And so he treats him with respect. Which again, and we talked about this last week, that's kind of a lacking quality. I mean, even believers now are so entrenched and militant in our beliefs that we don't give respect to somebody else. I mean, you don't have to watch the news very long before you find people disrespecting each other right and left, depending upon what channels you're watching. And if anybody had an opportunity or a reason to do that, it should be Daniel. And, and he didn't do that, which I find very, very interesting. Look at verse 20. Daniel gives him the interpretation of the dream. The tree you saw which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven and is visible to the ends of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in which was food for all, under which beast found shade and in all whose branches birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reached to the heavens and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher and a holy one coming down from heaven saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with bands of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field and let him be wet with dew of heaven and let his portion be with the beast of the field till seven periods of time come pass over him. This is the interpretation, king. It is the decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord the king that you shall be driven from among, your peop- among men and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox You shall be wet with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the the kingdoms of men and gives them to whom he wills. Hear the repeat. Anytime scripture repeats something, that's important. So he repeats this again. This is going to happen to you, king, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives them to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the root of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. In other words, when you come to that conclusion, then the kingdom is restored. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. So what is Daniel telling him here at the very end? Hmm? Repent. You know, turn so this might not happen to you. Why does God go to this trouble for a pagan king? I mean, doesn't God just talk to us good people? As church people? I mean, why go to this trouble? His will is that none would perish. Exactly. Scripture says that he's not willing that any should perish, but all come to eternal life. 
Remember, we, we went through this long, all these long stories about the children of Israel right before Jerusalem was destroyed. And how often did God keep trying to get their attention, keep asking them to turn, keep hammering away at them? Did he just do that because they were the children of Israel? Scripture tells us that God's no respecter of persons. So now he's doing the same thing with Babylonian king. He keeps giving him dream after dream after dream. Why dreams? Say again. Well, that's true. If you're if you're in a dream, if you're having a dream, you're kind of <laughs> you're not going to run away from the dream. You just have it, right? Any other ideas? So Daniel can interpret it. You know, God's still in, in a lot of countries, Africa, in, in Arab countries, in a lot of times, God is still, you can talk to our missionaries, God is still speaking to those people in dreams. It's what they listen to. It's what they pay attention to. God's going to speak to you in a means that gets your attention, in a means that you listen for. You know, if when, God, when Jesus calls fishermen, what does he tell them to do? I'm going to make you carpenters of men. No, he says, I'm going to make you fishers of men. It was something they got. It's something they could understand. And so that's why God speaks to Nebuchadnezzar in these dreams. And so one year later, one year later, the dream comes true. Look at verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of 12 months. Okay, so one year later, he has this dream. Daniel interprets this dream, and it's one year later. Now, if, if it's one year later, do you think he's thinking about that dream? It's, it, that was a year ago. Nothing happened. It's gone. Why worry about it? One year later, at the end of 12 months, he was walking on the ro roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built with my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? And while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know, here it is again, the Most High rules the kingdoms of men and gives them to whom he wills. You need to circle that in your Bible if, you're not, if, you, if you write in your Bible. That's the third time you've heard that in one chapter. This is a theme for Daniel. Okay? Verse 33, immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. It's pretty graphic, isn't it? It's really graphic. So what was the trigger for this dream coming true? Yes, 
him stroking his ego, him flexing his pride muscles. This is what, this is what God keeps trying to get across to Nebuchadnezzar. You're in this position because I put you in this position. If you go back into Jeremiah and you go back into Ezekiel, it even talks about Nebuchadnezzar being God's messenger. Actually, the word is angel. And it's very clear that God's using Nebuchadnezzar as his tool. He chooses to use Nebuchadnezzar as a messenger. So the fact that Nebuchadnezzar could overthrow, Babel, uh, or could overthrow Jerusalem, Judah, the, the fact that he could overthrow all the nations around it, he even overthrows the Assyrians who had overthrown Israel, that was all God's doing. And so God's constantly trying to remember him that God sets up kingdoms and takes kingdoms down. He, God is the one who places rulers over kingdoms, however he sees fit. And Nebuchadnezzar still wants to believe it's all him. It's all him. What's the message there for you and I? <laughs> Some of you are saying, you ask way too many questions. What's the message? Because if there's not a message here for us, why are we reading it? Pride cometh before fall. Pride cometh before fall. Absolutely. God can use each and every one of us if we'll follow His will. God can use us if we'll any one of any of us, each and every one of us, if we'll follow His will. And if we don't, He doesn't need us to to accomplish His will. Yeah. Now, Scripture's very plain about pride coming before a fall. It was his arrogance. And so, he has this big boastful moment of arrogance. God says, enough, the dream's coming through. And, and Nebuchadnezzar has this psychotic break. You know, the word psychotic break is not in the Scripture, but basically this is what it is. He has this psychotic break. His mind becomes animalistic, if you will. He... he he can't live among civilized people. He lives out in the wilderness. He sleeps out in the wilderness. He, he's drenched with dew of the morning. His hair gets long and his fingernails get long and probably curl up like bird's claws. He's been out there. Now it says he's out there for a period of seven periods of time. And it's very ambiguous. We don't really know what that was, but chances are it's not seven days and it's probably not seven weeks and it's probably not seven months. Because long hair and long nails wouldn't happen in probably that period of time. So it's probably a seven-year period that he's out there. He does this for seven years. Uh, and he goes from this clean-cut, cultured, having anything you want king to being this dirty, by barbaric, broken, animalistic kind of guy. That's pretty graphic. I mean, that's, I mean it's, that's a pretty bold way to get your point across, isn't it? You know? You think that still happens today? And I see some of you saying yes, some of you shaking your head. Big falls from grace. You know? And I'm not saying God does that to everyone. Because God just, God is not going to work in such a formula that you and I can figure him out so we can make sure we can work the system. He's just not. But this is what happens to Nebuchadnezzar. So finally, at the end of seven years, Nebuchadnezzar is restored to sanity. How did it happen? Look at verse 34. This is how it happened. 
At the end of the days, probably seven years, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. This is how this happens. This is how he comes back. Uh, notice the progression. First thing he does is that look, he looks up. I lifted my eyes to heaven. And then after that, his reason returns to him. And after his reason returns to him, then he begins to praise God. One leads to the other. One leads to the other. The problem is, most of us don't start by looking up. We get in a jam and we keep our head down and keep trying to figure out how to figure it out rather than looking up. But when we look up, then reason returns to us. Why? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So the wisdom that we need, instead of looking around here and looking here and looking here, is there, actually. So when we look up, then reason returns to us. When reason returns to us, we start praising God. Why? The circumstance doesn't change. I mean, he didn't immediately, it didn't immediately change until he starts praising God. So why did he start praising God once he looked up and reason returned to him? His focus changed. It's a whole lot easier to feel good about a situation, no matter what the situation is, if your focus is on the one who's in control of the situation rather than the situation itself. Yeah. His focus changed. How many of us, I'm not asking for a show of hands, by the way, so keep them down. But I'm wondering how many of us need that kind of focus change. How many of us need to be looking up so that our reason would return to us and so that we could praise God in the midst of our situation? Here's a sample of his praise towards God. Look at verse 34. Look at the second half of 34. For his dominion, this is his praise towards God, his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will. Well, yeah, he's going to say that now, isn't he? He does according to his will among the host of heavens and among the inhabitants of earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? So this is his praise. This is how he praises God. He basically said, okay, I get it now. God can do whatever he wants. Think about it. When you're in a really bad spot, is the first thing you think of, God can do whatever he wants, or is it, God, why are you doing this? Mine's usually the latter. And then if we say, well, God can do whatever he wants, then we get, get mad because we think he's some kind of bully. If a pagan king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar can get this, you and I probably need to get this too. So here's how he ends his letter. Here's how he ends it. Uh, look at verse 36. 
At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. That's a lesson. That was a hard lesson. It was a seven-year psychotic break lesson. Why would God go to this trouble with Nebuchadnezzar? He's a pagan king after all. He can just overthrow him if he wants to. We've already read three times that God puts whoever he wants to in control. Why? Okay, so he's a king, so if God can reach him, he can have way more influence. Okay. Okay. Think of another reason? I'm sorry, speak up. He's a person. He's a person. Okay, here's what I want you to do. Right now, I want you to think of the person you hate the most in the world. Okay, and I'm not kidding. We all have them. Okay, we all got them. You don't have to write their name down or say it out loud. But think of the person you most hate in the world. Okay. <laughs> now, as you think about that person who's caused you so much grief or you think is so wrong or you think is so evil, and etc. It doesn't even have to be somebody you know. Uh, now, I want you to get this idea in your head. God cares and loves them as much as he cares and loves you. Ooh, did I hear a groan? <laughs> I think I heard a groan in the room. Oh, really? He can't love that person as much as he loves me. King Nebuchadnezzar, who destroyed Jerusalem, burned it to the ground, tortured people, drugged them off, separated children from parents. And God cares as much about him as he does Daniel. That's a difficult concept, isn't it? But isn't that what John 3.16 tells us? For God so loved the world, not just the good people, not just the followers. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We still can't get that. We still read this like good guys and bad guys. I mean, it's really easy. In Daniel, you read good guys and bad guys. But they're all guys. They really are. And I think you're right. I think God is just trying to reach Nebuchadnezzar. Now, I, I do believe if, if God can reach Nebuchadnezzar, then he's going to have a whole lot of influence. And I think God would love to reach people of influence for the sake of his kingdom. But everybody is just as valuable from the king to the slave. And if you and I could get that, it would change how we relate to people. 
how we see people, how we talk about people, it would change everything. It would change our community. If just we could get that, it would change our community. There, this is what Daniel's trying to speak to us, both through Daniel and through Nebuchadnezzar. This is a big deal. All right, I soapboxed on that for a while. Anything else? Yes. Mm-hmm. Nip, nip. That's hard to say. Nick Ripken. Yeah. Um, I wonder what his real name is. But anyway, he said that we feel like we've got to destroy ISIS. And of course, that's the people that he was reaching out to. He said, what we forget is that for 2,000 years, they have not had Yeah. People who never had the gospel, why do you expect them to be different? I remember a pastor one time, I think it was a pastor, maybe been a professor in seminary, that used to say over and over again, why do you expect the dark to act like anything but the dark? You know, here's, I mean, if you really want to put this in perspective, we just had the anniversary of 9-11. The people that flew the planes into the building, God cared as much about them as he cares for you and I. That's hard to swallow. It just is. It really is hard to swallow. And I don't, to, to be honest with you, I don't even like the sound of it. But for God so loved the world. All right, preached enough. Let's go to the next part of this outline. We've talked about Nebuchadnezzar's second dream. We talked about his humiliation. Let's talk about the writing on the wall. The writing is on the wall. We've all heard that. This is where this comes from. All right, so look at King Nebuchadnezzar. He's, he's succeeded by his son, Belshazzar. Okay, uh, th those names get really close. Daniel's name and this, this son's name, they're, they're all really close. But he's succeeded by his son, Belshazzar. Belshazzar throws this big party for a thousand of his officials. I mean, he, when he throws a party, he throws a big party. All right, and at this party... As happens at most parties, there's just a little bit too much drinking going on. All right? Just a little too much drinking. All right? And so he gets a little drunk. And so he orders all the gold and silver cups and vessels that his father, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. He orders them brought out so that they could fill them up and drink from them. Now, what's the problem with this? If you know the story. That's right. The, the, the vessels he's asking for to be brought out are the vessels that came, his father, King Nebuchadnezzar, actually raided from the temple when they destroyed Jerusalem. And so they raided all that gold and silver and all the utensils and everything and put it in the Babylonian storehouse, the treasure house. So he's basically saying, let's go get all those vessels that were so holy to the Israelites and that set in their temple. Let's bring them out and drink from them. Let's put them to use. You know, let's not just leave the good china back here. Let's put it out and eat from it. Only this was a problem because he was basically showing great disrespect to the God of Israel. 
So he issues this order, and immediately after he issues this order, there's this hand with this finger that comes out and writes on the plaster of one of the walls. And it writes this message. And the king sees this, and he's, he, understandably, he's freaked out. He's very unnerved by this. Look at uh, chapter 5. Look at verse 6. Then the king's color changed. And his thoughts alarmed him. And his limbs gave way. And his knees knocked together. Which is understandable. Because if you saw that, you would be reaching for an answer. Or medication or something. Right? So he sees this. And, and, and he knows this is something different. You know, he, he doesn't believe that this is just the effects of the alcohol. He knows something's going on here. And... Uh, so he calls for the magicians and the enchanters and, and you know the whole routine and, and they come out and they're to interpret the words that are written on the wall because nobody understands the words. You know? Which again is interesting. If God wants to get your attention, you'd think he would write in a language you understood, right? But he doesn't. He writes this in a language that no one understands. So he calls in, uh, Belshazzar calls in all the magicians and enchanters. No one can interpret it. He offers to give them fame, fortune, give them the number three spot in the kingdom, but they still can't do it. So then he calls for Daniel. The queen remembers Daniel. And she says, hey, I remember this guy, and he used to interpret dreams for your father. You should call on him. So they call Daniel, and the king addresses Daniel. Look at verse 13. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel. Don't you love it when you say, Oh, so you're that Tom. You know, that always disturbs me just a little bit. You're that Brad. Ah, okay. Then the king was, Daniel was brought to the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods... Again, still plural. The spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men and the enchanters have been brought in before me to read this writing, to make it known to me, its interpretation. But they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple, a royal color, color, and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. It's pretty good for a slave taken in captivity from Jerusalem. It's not bad, right? Listen to Daniel's response. Look at verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and the greatness and the glory and majesty. Here's the theme again. God gave your father his kingship and his rule and his reign. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. And whom he would, he kept alive. And whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. 
But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down low from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. Daniel's doing a little history lesson for Belshazzar. And he was driven from among the children of mankind and his, made, man, his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys and he fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew, here's the theme again, that the Most High God rules the kingdoms of mankind and sets over them whom he will. Can I just remind you too that he not only does that with kings, but he does that with bosses and governors, and presidents, and senators, and congressmen. And he does that with everybody, not just with kings. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. <laughs> you know, you knew all this. You knew this happened, and you're still not humbling yourself. But you lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold and of bronze and of iron and wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed, and this is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter, or of these words. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. And he says this twice, just to make sure he gets it. Tekel. You have been weighed in the balance and found wanting. And Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Not the kind of interpretation you want, right? But listen to how he responds. Then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple and a chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. Now Daniel said he didn't want that. But the king does it anyway. Look at verse 30. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius, the Mede, received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. That very night, God didn't waste time. When he gave, gave Nebuchadnezzar the, the vision of, of basically a psychotic break. He waited 12 months before he fulfilled it. With his son, that very night he fulfills it. Uh, it's interesting. Daniel interpreted the words to mean you have been weighed in the balance and found wanting. So your kingdom will be divided between the Medes and the Persians. What are some principles you take away from this chapter about the handwriting on the wall? If you, if you don't get anything from me, I ask a lot of questions. And the reason I ask the questions is I think when you read Scripture and you've read a portion of Scripture, you should sit back and go, so what? So what? Okay, so this happened. So what? What is it there that I'm supposed to get out of it? What's the so what of this chapter? 
Did I see a hand? By the time you get it right, it may be too late. Oh, by the time you see the writing on the wall, it may be too late. Yeah, could be. Don't wait around and think about things too long. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny. It was all, the writing on the wall basically said you're done. It's over. You're toast. End of story. Can't change it. So... But he had a lot of chances. I mean, he saw his father go through this. Someone else, what's something you pull from this? I don't think you can mock God and get away with it. Can't mock God and get away from it. Or get away with it. Or at least not very long. Yeah, you know, and that's the dilemma. You never know when that is. You know? Because God is very, very patient. You know, how many of you, when you were a kid, you knew just how far to push your parent before they brought out the paddle? Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, it was like clockwork. It was a science. I mean, you knew exactly how far you could go, and you knew exactly when the signs were showing, and you knew exactly how close to get before you had to back off. Yeah, yeah. With my mom said my first and middle name at the same time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the first and middle name was always a giveaway, yeah. Uh, and... and but we don't have that with God. You just don't get that with God. You know? So, yeah, you never know when too late is too late. Something else. This goes back to Nebuchadnezzar's first dream about the statue. Yes. Where he was the gold. And then now this is the next part, the silver part. Exactly. This is a progression of the statue vision dream. Because Nebuchadnezzar was the, the head of gold. And his son, by air being an air, the head of gold. But the next part, the shoulders, the, the torso, uh, that was the Medes and Persians. And now the Medes and Persians are in play. So God's playing out this dream as you go along. And, and you'll find out, we'll find out later, this is, it's really important that the Medes and the Persians take over because eventually it's Darius who sends the people back to Jerusalem to rebuild. You know, it, 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 that's how they get back there is through this king. You think of anything else that stands out to you? I'll give you a few of my takeaways from this chapter. One, and somebody said it earlier, pride does come before a fall. <laughs> you know, it, pride will get you every single time. Maybe, maybe not sooner. Maybe later, but it will get you. And, and we have really nothing to be prideful about. I mean, if I go back and look at my history, there's not a whole lot of things I can really wave the banner on, so to speak. Uh, and what few there are, they're far outweighed by all the uglier stuff in life. We don't have a whole lot to be prideful for. Another takeaway is, is what we do what we do for God's glory and not for our profit. That's why Daniel said, hey, you can keep your money. You know, I'm here to fulfill a purpose. This is what I do. Keep your money. Uh, but we forget that. We forget, and, and so life becomes about us. It becomes about our paycheck. It becomes about our retirement. It becomes about the nicer car, the bigger house. It, but we're supposed to be doing what we do for God's glory. Now, are, is there anything wrong with those things? No, not necessarily. 
but it depends upon what the end result you're looking for is. Uh, we should learn from others' past mistakes rather than repeat them. There's something about us that's arrogant enough to say, well, that happened to them, but it won't happen to us. You know, which is just arrogance. You know, any of you raised a kid who the only way they seem to learn is they had to bump into something and bruise themselves up and then back up and learn? You know, they could even watch somebody do it in front of them, but think, ah, that won't happen to me. And then they go and do the same mistake. We should learn not to do that. And that's, again, about our pride and about our arrogance. I love this statement in verse 23. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. We should honor and serve the one who holds our breath. You know? If someone holds your breath, that's someone you should honor. Because at any moment they can take it from you. And, and we worry about so many things and so many people and so many. But we don't worry enough about the one who holds our breath. And somebody already said it. God will do what he says he'll do. He just will. You know. That old thing, because I said so. Yeah, God can use that. God can use that. Okay, anything else? We need to close for tonight. We will hit the lion's den next time we're together. Anything else? Nebuchadnezzar may have done this, but I think there's lessons that we learn. We try our best to pass this down. Yes, yes. And, and I, I mean, I'm sure that Belshazzar, his son, was kind of like on the front lines of all that stuff he went through. Uh, but he didn't learn. It's interesting that Daniel gave Nebuchadnezzar a chance to repent. Yes. Beforehand. And he said, you know, a year later, he's not thinking about it. He's just walking along the roof, looking at all that he has done. But he could have repented. Absolutely. Quickly. And I wonder, just makes me wonder how the story might change. Had he turned from what he was doing and done that again? Yes. How would the story have changed if Nebuchadnezzar had repented? And God did that with his own people. Again, through Jeremiah and Ezekiel. You see him time and time again saying, I know where you're headed. You're getting ready to go off the cliff. Just turn. Just turn. Time and time again, he, he talked to them through preaching, through these weird acts that Ezekiel went through. All giving him chance after chance after chance after chance after chance to turn. Uh, they just waited one chance too late. Yes? We don't know who was in charge while he was in the wilderness. If it was his son, it was probably, you know, he's surrounded by these uh, political lackeys. And they probably ran most of the things, probably. Uh, there's much here for us. Yes? You haven't even go there. Listen to your wife. Absolutely. Absolutely. Listen to your wife. How many queens have told their <laughs> husband, you know, what to do? Well, and that works. 
that works. I mean, you'll see that through Scripture until you get to Jezebel, and then there's a problem. Yeah. So, I'm not going to tell you whether you're married to Jezebel or not. That's up to you. Uh, take chances. But, yeah, there is, there is some wisdom to that. Uh, I do believe God has given wives uh, kind of a sixth sense. They're much more emotionally tuned and, and, and multitasking and seeing bigger pictures than, than we are. And so when they raise the red flag, I think we should at least pay attention to it. And I'm not just saying that because my wife's here this evening. Although I hope it helps, <laughs> right? <laughs> Anyone else? All right, let's close. Father, I'm grateful for this time together in your word. I'm grateful for these friends and, and family, Father in Christ. I'm grateful for the privilege and, and the freedom we have to open up your word and, and to read it and to ask questions about it and to see how it applies to us. And I'm, as always, I'm grateful for a word that's not... that's not and stodgy and dusty and, and, and unapplicable to us. I'm grateful for a word that's just as applicable today as it was in Daniel's time. And I pray that you would help us throughout this week to find something in your word that we've read and studied this evening that we can apply to our own life. And, uh, and I do pray, Father, that you would help us to look up more so that we might have reason return to us more, so that we might praise you more. Just those three things would change our life and probably our world. So ask, us, ask Father, that you would give us your grace and your mercy to get what we need out of this evening and to apply it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.